Destruction of the Petworth Dam The destructive tornado, which swept through Grand Island, Nebraska on June 1, 1980, demolished half the city's buildings and took the lives of nearly 100 people. Among the missing and assumed dead was 95-year-old Harry Ivers, a resident of Chalmers' home for senior citizens, which was completely destroyed. Harry's recurring threat throughout his lengthy residence at the home was, If somebody don't blow this place to hell, I'll do it myself. Though not original, Harry's language was natural as well as forcible, for in his most active and notorious years, he was the respected, hard-drinking foreman of dynamiting crews in the feldspar mines near Verona, Ontario. Many times Harry wished sincerely that he had died in the saddle. On his 95th birthday, seated in his wheelchair looking at the conflagration of candles on his cake, his prayer was partially answered. A sudden, cataclysmic, deafening wind collapsed Grand Island and propelled him beyond the curse of his confinement. He was not like Elijah, conveyed by chariot and whirlwind, full-bodied through flame into the upper air. Rather, he was appropriately detonated, smashed, fragmented, and pulverized like a wonderfully weathered and time-resistant stone, still stubborn and headstrong after ninety-five years, he was shattered by earthquake and catapulted into celestial circles. The fatal tornado occurred, curiously, upon the sixty-fifth anniversary of Harry's annual recollection that he figured the blast that knocked him for a loop near midnight at Petworth on the 1st of June, 1915, had finished him off at the early age of 30. The destruction of the dam at Petworth was indeed the most crucial occurrence in Harry Ivers' life. It brought him notoriety and sent him into exile. After the explosion, which roused sleepers from their beds as far away as Bellrock, Harry disappeared. That he had triggered the blast, no one doubted. But why he had taken part in one of the common disputes between farmers and millers over flooding and power supply was a matter for both debate and conjecture. Such quarrels prevailed along Ontario's waterways from the earliest settlement of the land. Frontenac, Lennox, and Addington and Leeds counties, which received more than adequate rain and snowfall, were perennially at the very center of altercations over crop loss through flooding and the storage of water for power. As a result, dam blastings became common to the area as the waterways were harnessed. Fable and confusion surround many of the continually reconstructed stories of quarrels resulting in the closing of mills. The majestic and rustic limestone ruin of the Petworth grinding mill, still standing near the Napanee River Bridge, is said by some to have been brush-grown and roofless since before the blasting of the dam. Some assert that both the flour mill and the sawmill south of the bridge were in operation and were forced to shut down because of the dam's destruction. 
Whatever disagreements and contradictions persist as to the fates of the mills at Petworth, no one presumes to contest that Harry Ivers engineered one of the most marvelous damn blastings in the region's long-established history of settling grievances by dynamite. No willful removal of a dam before or since remains as vivid in the minds of old residents as the blast of the dam at Petworth. Minard Borman, who still lives at the bend of the Napanee, above the old site of the dam, recalls with both wonder and pleasure in his eyes, "'Twas like the blast o' doom. My brother L and me both set bolt upright while we was sleepin' in our bed, for all at once the windows shattered and the whole house shook like twas about to crumble." According to George Brandt, who has farmed near Bell Rock for over fifty years, the dam at Petworth was forcibly removed when he was just a willow of a boy. I remember all of us still being up somewhere near midnight celebrating my father's birthday when a kind of tremor run through the house. We took it should be the faraway rolling of thunder, but next day we learned that the sound came up to where we were from the goings-on way down at Petworth. It was Ian Kirby, the octogenarian recorder of numerous dam disputes and blastings in central Ontario, who learned most about Harry Ivers and finally pieced his story together. Kirby was convinced long ago that Harry deserved some special recognition in Ontario's historical records, but his fondness for Harry prevented him from divulging the whole story until after the Grand Island storm. Harry came originally from New York State, where, in his earliest years, he worked on a section gang for the Lackawanna Railroad. After half a year, he was transferred to a bridge crew. Occasionally, bridge repairs required minor demolition techniques, or altercation of the roadbed, so Harry gradually became acquainted with the use of explosives. Soon he found himself fascinated by the task of what he called altering the landscape according to plan. He had always been a bit of a renegade. At sixteen, he tired of picking rocks and clearing stumps on his father's farm in Lower New York and went to Buffalo. Both Highway 24 and the Lackawanna right-of-way ran within sight of the farm. Harry often watched and listened with a great longing in his heart. As the trucks passed, and the train, with its long line of freight cars, marked the route of Phoebe Snow, sent its beckoning and lonely whistle to him across the open fields. In Buffalo, he did odd jobs, started to smoke and drink, became acquainted with prostitutes, got in a number of fights, and committed some petty thefts. Often he was both cold and hungry, he ate in cheap cafes. He slept in dingy rooms, in boxcars, on park benches, in bum jungles, or in jail. Many times he was tired, beyond knowing or caring where he slept. But he was determined not to return to the farm. He wanted to get a job on the railroad, and in the summer of 1902 was given the chance with an extra gang. He liked the work and the rugged men he worked with. Their ways were rough and their drinking heavy, but they lined tracks, loaded ties, lifted steel, spiked and tamped with steady, coarse-humored diligence. After the extra gang had finished its summer work, 
Harry was one of a few men kept on. Throughout the winter, he broomed out switches, shoveled station platforms, worked in bitter winds changing broken rails, huddled and shivered with the section crew near noontime open fires. When summer came again, Harry was assigned to the bridge crew. With his career on the railroad virtually assured, Harry became more enterprising and assertive. His education had been limited, but he learned how to read blueprints and how to solve some fairly difficult engineering problems. Wasn't much to learn, Dynamitin', he told Kirby. All he had to do was get a straight idea on what you wanted to move and where you wanted it to be set in after the smoke cleared. In the early 1900s, freight loads of commercial feldspar shipped out of Canada stirred Harry's interest. In 1910, his curiosity, wanderlust, and the prospect of working at dynamiting in the feldspar mines prompted him to cross the border into Ontario. Within two weeks, he was working in the mines. Before the end of his first summer, he was the foreman of a regular blasting crew. There was something special and queer about him, according to Jim Henderson, boss of the big Richardson mine near Desert Lake. He knew at a glance how the rocks were grained and how much resistance there'd be in a section. The charges, he set were always near perfect. I expect he could have dropped spar in a lunch pail if he took a mind to it. He had a habit of calling everything and everybody Willie. The men, the horses, the wagons, the dynamite, the stones he was about to blow, all of them was Willie. Just before a blast, you'd hear him holler, Look to your big toe, Willie. For all of his reputation for precision, Harry had occasional radical urges. Sometimes, he admitted to Kirby, I felt like blowing off a few hundred cases altogether just to see the beauty of all them rocks set free at once. However, he told Henderson, one rain-drenched morning at the mine, that he liked blowing up rocks rain or shine because he had learned to hate the son of bitches on his father's farm. It is rather unlikely that his father's farm had much, if anything, to do with Harry's becoming a party to the farmer's cause in the Frontenac County dispute. What was substantiated by Harry himself was that he had got hold of an idea that needed some cash. Feldspar mining had quite naturally prompted Harry to consider trying to uncover more valuable materials. He had heard of the gold and silver mines near Plackerville and Silver City many times and a fairly good friend on the Lackawanna kept urging him to go to the Trinity Alps with him to prospect for gold. He had heard of the gold and silver mines near Placerville and Silver City many times, and a fairly good friend on the Lackawanna kept urging him to go to the Trinity Alps with him to prospect for gold. Harry lost track of the friend, but after a few years at Ontario, he found himself wishing to take the trail to the Trinities. When he was offered money to blow up the dam at Petworth, Harry saw his chance to leave Ontario and try his hand at staking a claim in Northern California. He blinked the whole matter of trying to determine the relative merits of the viewpoints of the two opposing parties. In the summer of 1915, tension between the millers and the farmers in Frontenac County was increasing daily. Kirby speculates that the onset of war might have contributed to more than usual unrest. 
At any rate, a farmer's petition for the removal of the dam at Petworth, followed by a more moderate one to increase the dam's spillage, both failed to gain legal approval. Claims of political influence and partiality voiced upon the dismissal of the first petition turned to threats of violence after the defeat of the second. As the arguments intensified, Harry's stock kept improving. He often half-regretted having taken $1,500 for one night's work, but he partially justified himself because he considered Carl Davis, the farmer's middleman, to be as crooked a salesman as ever run a plow. However, his removal of dynamite sticks from the mine supply bothered him sorely. In his will, he designated that $34, the going price for six cases of dynamite plus safety fuses and detonators, be paid to Richardson Spar Mines Limited of Montreal, a corporation long defunct before his death. A mist-wrapped three-quarters moon had already arched just slightly westward when two armed boys assigned to fire an alarm if anyone approached the Petworth Dam were overpowered by Harry's men. The two were bound and gagged and placed in the bed of a wagon standing in Borman's field. Harry and his three men then joined two others at the wagon stationed about half a mile away on the Petworth Road. Through shifting shadows cast by the thin-veiled moon, each man carried a case of dynamite cautiously a short distance along the side road leading toward Borman's house, then across his hayfield and down to the site of the dam. Harry knew the dam in every detail, all of its dimensions, water level above and below, placement of reinforcing rods in the holding structure. In order to prevent sabotage, the Petworth Dam had been constructed with six in-stream piers, calculated to secure the steel-reinforced concrete forming the main wall of the dam. The principal gate was located between the first and second southernmost piers, the small auxiliary overflow gate next to the north shore. The only flaw in the structure, a small crack running for about a meter upward from the ground level in the south shore fanned abutment, Harry dismissed as insignificant. For generations, conjectures mixed with facts and rumors have persisted as to the exact nature, quantity, and placement of the explosives used to blow the Petworth Dam. The six cases carried were, in fact, all detonated. Every charge contained 60% nitrogel, 20% more than usually used by Harry for blowing feldspar. The sticks were gradually prepared by Harry at the mine, purloined and stored in Ned Arnold's farm near Moscow. Harry also acquired enough safety fuse, along with fuse detonators, to serve the charges. In order to be able to set off all the charges at once, he appropriated a circuit igniter. His intention was to simultaneously dislodge and disintegrate all the piers, and with their destruction, send the wall of water from behind the dam rushing with such force as to clear the middle of the stream of rubble and throw the entire structure up on shore. Setting the question of the appropriateness of their actions aside, 
Harry and his aides were indeed dedicated and daring. With the help of only slender moonlight, they managed to place charges on the shoulders of every peer, two of them underwater. Harry descended to every location, checked the placement of the charge, crimped the fuse, and set the detonator. Each time, he used an identical length of safety fuse, which he led back up the circuit igniter located at the dam's center. After his sixth and final trip to the top of the dam, Harry remained a moment alone. The others had retreated to the shore. He knelt in the hazy moonlight before the fuses, counting them one last time, checking to see if they were firmly in the sleeve. Satisfied, he struck a match and held the flame against the heavy cardboard. In that same pulse beat, he looked intently downward toward the charges. Are you ready, Willie? he whispered. Then he became a sliding shadow, shouldering the drifting moon. A swift, dark dancer gliding shoreward away from the darker dancers hissing toward the piers. Just as he reached the brush above the bank, a globe of lightning thundered through the night. The world was roused from sleep. The Napanee rushed from her chains at flood tide. But in that selfsame moment, Harry Ivers dropped senseless to the ground. He would never divulge the name of the doctor who cared for him during the next three weeks of hiding at the Arnold's farm, not even to Kirby. They were fair with me, Harry told him, them cattle raisers, even that rascal Davis, said they'd never seen such a job of lifting a dam plumb out of the river and setting it up on shore. Harry was given his fifteen hundred dollars and three weeks of free doctrine and lodging. Then he started on his way to California. With his trek to California, Harry began sixty-five years of semi-bewilderment and dislocation. After the concussion suffered at Petworth, he became susceptible to recurring headaches, loss of memory, blank moments, and dizzy spells. Usually, he managed well enough, but his mind was often clouded, events unclear to him, the past dim, his intentions vague. However, near his thirty-first birthday, and every succeeding birthday, there arrived for Harry an inexplicable, nearly fearful lucidity, followed by the loss of knowing and seeing particulars. In the late spring of every year, Harry became aware of events hardly noticed or only vaguely lived during the previous year. His memory sharpened daily until, by early June, every detail of his existence could be recalled. As the years went by, he amassed an astounding reservoir of lost or hiding recollections, all of which resurfaced once a year. Without fail, after each year's episode, people, places, and events gradually faded, often leaving no trace upon his mind until the season of recollection returned. During the lucid time, 
when vanished days reappeared, Harry was transformed by the seasonal cycle of remembering and the fear of forgetting. His attempts to explain the phenomenon usually brought skeptical smiles. His sister, however, with whom he stayed for some time in Grand Island, thought that the rock which felled him had granted him a lifelong gift. He was given the chance every year to look up and down the lengths of his lifetime and start over again. His past became new, awareness a marvel. He walked through streets no longer nameless, among familiar faces, past houses recognized. He watched Lackawanna freights go by, swept switches in the cold of winter, talked to dynamite fuses in the Feldspar mines. He saw himself sleeping on cold nights under newspapers on the Embarcadero, panning for gold in the Trinities, eking out an existence at countless jobs in New Mexico and Arizona. He saw every wash and rivulet in the Trinities where he panned for gold. He knew every leaf, every flower. He looked at the mountain peaks and tall trees and remembered having walked through the hills pondering the scattering and the dying of the seeds and the making and the breaking of the rocks. He sat in his wheelchair before his birthday cake in his 95th year, looking up and down the vivid distances flamed by the candles. Suddenly, he sensed the flames were underfoot. He saw his silhouette against the moon, running across the dam top, pursued by hissing powder. He tried to shout, but the rampant tornado wrapped him in thunder and tossed the fragments of his shattered body upon a distant shore. <laughs>